from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is right Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of hearing my voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. When Sandy slammed into New York City last night, all expectations were shattered. There was more water moving with more force in more directions than was ever foreseen. This is just unbelievable. We're downtown by the towers. The incredible record-setting 14-foot storm surge hit like a liquid fist. When Hurricane Sandy hit New York City in 2012, it flooded lots of buildings, including the one where the artist and performer Laurie Anderson lived with her husband Lou Reed. After that storm, she went down to their basement to find her archives of all her work pretty much destroyed. All the things I'd carefully saved all my life. Becoming nothing. But junk. And I thought, how beautiful. How magic. And how catastrophic. That song, Everything is Floating, is on her new album, Landfall, uh, which is a collaboration with the Kronos Quartet. And just as that is coming out, she also has a big, beautiful book of essays and pictures looking back on her career called All the Things I Lost in the Flood. You know, seawater is powerful. And this was electronics and keyboards and, yeah, stuff. And and it pulped it. It turned it into oatmeal. I couldn't believe I went to fish a few things out and dry it out. And I I just stood there going, whoa. They they had just disintegrated, pulverized. So at first I, I I was really devastated. A couple of days later, I thought, you know, I don't have to clean the basement ever. And a couple of days after that, I'm going through the inventory the, of the stuff that was down there. And I'm reading these lists and descriptions of things and papers and props. And, and I realized, you know, having that list is better, really. Not even just as good as it's better than having a basement full of stuff. Because it's all in the mind, you know. <laughs> just it evokes all that stuff. Do you really want to keep this stuff? Didn't you have a, a relative who said, "You throw it away now or throw it away later"? You know, one of those things. And this, so it, it, I got lightened up. So the, the 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 virtual quality of it, the library of your life, was lighter than the real and better than the real thing. I thought so. Yeah. So that's why I started the book, um, thinking about. Uh, representation, you know, what language does. It's really about how stories affect pictures and things. And the main story in there is what is a story? What are stories and why do we have to have them? Among the great things about this book is is that it chronicles pieces that people who are only familiar with your later work probably aren't even aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I think of, of this early performance piece that you talk about in there called Duets on Ice. Oh, well, that's a, I was um, uh, making these... Uh, violins at that point. And uh, as a violinist, I I loved kind of reinventing the instrument if I could. So I had one that I was a, kind of a self-playing violin and put a speaker inside it so that you could, the violin played, and then you could play with it 
live. So you're playing a duet with live and recorded violin. And so I did some concerts in Italy. Because this music was a loop, it was an endless cassette loop, and you're playing against it, there was no end. So I thought, how, what can the timing mechanism be? So I wore some ice skates with their blades frozen into blocks of ice. And so you play this duet, and when the ice melts and you lose your balance, that's the end. I made this dedication when I was playing on the street. And I said, you know, I, I, I wrote these for my grandmother because on the day she died, I walked out onto this frozen lake and... Um, I saw all these ducks, and they were honking, flapping their wings, and I got really close to them, and they didn't fly away, and I got right next to them, and they still, they weren't, they were just there. And I saw that their feet had been frozen into the new layer of ice. So you took that pretty haunting image and turned it into this whimsical performance idea. I mean, people must have smiled at that, right? The ducks weren't that, that happy about it. No, but I'm saying your performance of being stuck in ice, that's a funny idea. I like to laugh. I really do. Yeah. So, And, you know, like avant-garde art, which is was my world, it's super serious. <laughs> you know, yes. it's super serious. And, I mean, when I became a, a... I was started out as a minimalist sculptor and painter, and we could spend... And did spend days talking about like things like the edge, the edge, what the meaning of the edge, and and for minimal sculptures and how the displacement of space and the, and then the dematerialization of the art object. And we were, you know, we were really strict. Yes. So I I like to try to push against that a little bit even then. Yeah, the piece that I guess that really brought you to the attention of orders of magnitude more people than just avant-garde habitués of New York was the, your 1981 recording of O Superman, which is going to play now. Hopefully an excerpt of it. <laughs> sing maybe once a decade. You know, people always go, what, did you just write that yesterday? It seems like it's about now, you know, and there's some lines in there. Here come the planes. They're American planes. Here come the planes. They're American planes made in America. I happened to play Town Hall right after, four days after 9-11, and uh, sang that song and that and it's it's very rare to be singing in the absolute present, you know. But the thing was that it wasn't that the song was continuously relevant. It was that the world hadn't changed that much. We were still in that world, which we're still in. Oh, Superman uh, got to number two on the pop charts in the U.K., but it isn't exactly a song. What you, what you do in a lot of your work, uh, it seems to me, is, is on this continuum somewhere between spoken word and music. Yeah, it's it's. I'm always on the edge of what a what a longer note is and what a spoken note is because we're. I mean, we're using notes, and and what I like about English really is the same thing I like about German is that we use very few notes. We're not 
going up and down the scale like the Italians and the French, you know, and, and Chinese using pitch for meaning. So it's very restrained, and I like that a lot. Well, I, I think Germans do lapse into song having to do with doors. If you've never noticed, they, when you come in and out of a door, they're, they're talking to you like this in the monotone, German monotone, and then suddenly you go, Wiedersehen, Dankeschön, and they begin to use these operatic voices. They're just happy to see you go. You also, in terms of your playing around artfully with voice, is, is you alter your voice electronically uh, regularly. Here's a clip from uh, your piece, uh, Difficult Listening Hour, from 1986. Who are you? And he said, now, I am the soul doctor. And you know, language is a virus from outer space. And hearing your name is better than seeing your face. You know, you get so sick. You must get sick of your own voice, oh, right? You know, yes. And you're like, oh, here I am. Everybody has that. It's like, I wish whoever's talking would just stop talking and you realize, ooh, it's me. Yeah, <laughs> you're yeah, just yeah, like yeah. spewing on and on. and So if you get the chance to alter your voice, it's very refreshing. Plus, if you're talking like that or like this, you know, you find that you have a very different point of view. Because you became authoritative. Yeah, or you're j- or melancholic or you're not just trapped in your same old yeah. thing, you know. Um, I want to... I want to play another piece, which is from your new album, Landfall. This is uh, The 19 Stars of Heaven. And when you say lie, do you mean the kind of lie that Lincoln told when he was talking to the soldiers who were leaving for the front? There are these pauses, these these quirky pauses. I love listening to that, but I always think this must make people uncomfortable, some people uncomfortable, these kind of awkward pauses that you do in lots and lots of your work, right? The, 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 the I'm pausing. Of, oh, there you go. <laughs> Making me uncomfortable, as you do. <laughs> you know, I, I, just, I just hear silence as rhythm, I, I, you know, when it's not there. Anything could happen. I like the stuttering part of putting pauses into things because we have it in our daily communication. And, it, and this kind of like little ways to stop and uh, figure out what's coming next is, is I find a, a lifelike as opposed to here's my song and I'm going to sing it just like this without right. any, you know. And, and so I like it when it has the hesitation and mistakes and all the stuff that we have when we're trying to talk to each other. Is it equivalent to what a painter or designer does with a white space or negative space? Is it that kind of thing? Is you it, could I'm, say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a nothing. But, I mean, but of course, it's, silence is never nothing. You made a wonderful uh, feature-length doc in 2015 called Heart of a Dog, um, which is kind of an elegy to your late dog, Lola Bell. Let's watch a clip of that. When Lola Bell went blind... Elizabeth decided it was time for her to learn piano. 
So he set up some keyboards on the floor, and she would run over and turn them on and start to play. Lolabelle played every day for two years, and she got reasonably good. That is your dog, Lola Bell, your late rat terrier, Lola Bell, from Heart of a Dog. She's Uh, using a backing track, just in case you're, you know, wondering. She's playing the the rhythms on top and barking along. She's playing the rhythms on top? Yeah, the... We talked before about your resilience after Hurricane Sandy and all your stuff getting flooded out. You lost Lola Bell not long after that. Uh, but within a span of, of that very few years, you also lost your husband, uh, the musician Lou Reed, whom you'd been with for 20-odd years, as well as your mother. Um, and you responded to all of that by being extremely productive. Your movie, Heart of a Dog, uh, as well as music and, and this new book, all of it addresses loss, but it didn't make you feel like just rolling up in a ball and doing nothing? Weirdly, it did the opposite. It kind of catapulted me into, I have to say, this kind of crazy state of, like, um, happiness. I learned how to be happy about unhappy things. The kind of teaching that I had became very important to me. So, for example, my main teacher, Mingyur Rinpoche, would say, try to practice how to feel sad without actually being sad. I thought, there's a distinction that is very worthwhile making. You know, don't push it away. The world is full of terrible and horribly sad things. But he's just saying, don't become them. And recognize them. Don't push them away. Don't pretend they're not there. Because if you do pretend they're not there, they're going to come and they're going to eat you alive. They will They will destroy you. I, I wrote a, a song once about loss because sometimes, what can you do? You can try to replace it with something. This song was about living next to a railroad and and having a shelf full of, of glass and porcelain objects. And so every time the train comes through, stuff falls off the shelf and it breaks. And so you keep replacing it, and you you keep replacing it eventually with cheaper and cheaper things until all you have is a f- shelf of really cheap stuff. It, it was a song about hope and how you try to keep going, you know, and what you're drawing on in your life to, to do that. Well, and what it what, what I think you're saying, what, it, what I've noted as I was reading the book, is, is that loss, of course, means that you were lucky enough to have something that you cared about so much that you now feel the loss of. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. You know, like some people's friends die or, or a relative dies and they go, eh, I didn't know the guy that well anyway. I don't really like him that much. It's a way yeah. to say, you know, uh, to protect yourself from feeling, missing them so much right. the rest of your life. Right. You know, so you just minimize it. So, I mean, being able to have enough space to recognize what it is um, and feel it and then just also kind of go, um, uh, this is awesome. <laughs> you know, it really, and I, I just, it does make me want to lighten up. Is that just because of you were 
born and raised to be hopeful and No, I'm a, I'm a gloomy sweetie. I know, me? but I'm just like dread and dark. I'm a yeah. Bergman person. Yeah. You know, that's my natural go-to thing. Yeah. So, you know, you try to push against your go-to thing sometimes and go, all right, worst thing just happened. I lost this person and I had this 21-year conversation with every single minute. That suddenly is over. And you go, okay, what will you do with that? That's really a fact. So then a lot of things start happening when you recognize that. Because you can choose to be happy also. You know, and you can it's a choice which emotional world you're going to be pulling yourself into. Uh, so I choose to be happy. Laurie Anderson's book, All the Things I Lost in the Flood, is out now. And so is Landfall, her album with the Kronos Quartet. Coming up. My brain just get randomly collided ideas together to create new concepts. Using your Tourette syndrome tics as an inspiration for artists. And it was recording these tics, biscuit, that can be biscuit, can be very biscuit, can be very simple noises or single words, biscuit, or can be really long and complicated sentences. Hedgehog, biscuit, tortoise porno, biscuit, like a tortoise porno, biscuit, cornflakes, biscuit. And I started to see the value of tics and see them as a creative asset and something to be utilised. Why someone might film or paint or choreograph a dance based on a tortoise porno. That's next on Studio 360. Biscuit, I have Tourette syndrome, Biscuit, which is a neurological condition that means I make movements and noises I can't control called tics. That's just Tom. She's a writer and artist who lives in London, and she hasn't always been so open about having Tourette's, even with herself. Biscuit, I certainly had an idea that I moved around in an unusual way and made noises in an unusual way. But as a child, I think I made up lots of other different reasons um, for that behaviour. I think I was much more likely to think that I was bad or naughty or, you know, or evil than, than understanding that I had Tourette's syndrome. And actually, the reality of life with that condition is actually much less bad than lots of the things I probably imagined as a child. And one thing that has made having Tourette's much less bad for Tom is this ongoing project she does with other artists. Matt Fiddler has that story. Tourette's syndrome is defined by having both verbal and physical tics. The thump you're hearing while she talks is one of the physical tics that Jess Tom has, hitting herself in the chest with a closed fist. And she has other physical tics that can interfere with simple daily tasks like drinking tea or walking downstairs. Her vocal tics are words and phrases that can be made up of nearly anything that is in her vocabulary. But her most common vocal tic is the word biscuit. 
it means that I am very biscuity. Uh, biscuit, which if you're um, listening to this in North America, I'd like you to think about cookies. She is very biscuity, saying biscuit every 10 seconds or so. If I left her mic on while she wasn't talking, you'd hear her quietly ticking words and phrases as she sat listening to my questions. And she does want you to know that Tourette syndrome is not the swearing disease. In fact, 90% of people with Tourette syndrome don't tick inappropriate things. And the 10% who do are said to have coprolalia. I am one of the 10% of people with Tourette's who has coprolalia, biscuit, and that is obscene ticks, biscuit. But still for me, that's quite an unusual part of my condition. Jess first started seeing symptoms of Tourette's syndrome around six years old. They started pretty subtle, but they grew increasingly more frequent in her early 20s. But even as that was happening, she didn't get a diagnosis. It became increasingly obvious that I needed a way of explaining to other people. And it's very hard, Biscuit, to explain something that you don't understand yourself, Biscuit, and that you don't have, you know, a clear explanation for. So certainly Matthew Biscuit was a key part um, of encouraging me to get a diagnosis and to feel confident. Matthew Pountry is a close friend of Jess's. I am the quieter of the two of us. (laughs) Cats, less biscuity. I'm much less biscuity. Matthew and Jess became friends when they both worked at a play center for children with disabilities. It was Matthew who really encouraged Jess to get a diagnosis. I remember many years ago getting you to watch an episode of South Park that had (laughs) uh, featured some people with Tourette's in it and Cartman uh, claiming to have Tourette's. Ass cheeks! Kyle, apparently you missed the school assembly yesterday, but I've been diagnosed with a very serious mental condition. You do not have Tourette's syndrome, fat ass. Jess eventually did get a diagnosis. And then she had to face her disability head on for the first time in her life. She remembers having long conversations with Matthew about Tourette's and what it might mean for her life. Lots of those conversations, Biscuit had ended in tears. And then we had a conversation one evening, Biscuit, where Matthew Biscuit described uh, Tourette's as a crazy language generating machine. Biscuit... And he told me that not doing something creative with it, Biscuit, would be wasteful. And it was that kind of talk that started Jess on a path to accept her condition. There was something about that idea of a language-generating machine, Biscuit, that really captured my imagination. And certainly I'd also been brought up to think that being wasteful was, like, really bad. So I think that when Jess's tics became more noticeable, I was just very naturally drawn to them as being these kind of random moments and and some of the the imagery of her tics some of the longer ones are just exactly are they're they're just kind of incredible poetic visual moments that it just seemed like if we don't write these down then you know the next day we're going to think what was that amazing thing that you said and and it's going to be lost One of the ideas that Matthew and I first talked about in terms of this idea of this language generating machine was the fact that my brain randomly collided ideas together to create new concepts. And it was recording these ticks that can be be very very simple noises or single words. It can be really long and complicated sentences. Hedgehog, biscuit, tortoise porno, biscuit. Like a tortoise porno, biscuit, <laughs> cornflakes, biscuit. And I started to see the value of ticks and see them as a creative asset and something to be utilised. And then they had an idea that they should actually document Jess's ticks. 
and not just write them down, but share them on a website, a website that they would call Tourette's Hero. The idea is that this random language generating machine was kind of a superpower to create random language for the purpose of inspiring art. Matthew and Jess document the most unusual tics that came out of Jess's mouth and post them for artists to use however they want. And the point was not just to normalize Jess's condition, but to show it could also be beneficial to help inspire artists. Artists like Amber Anderson. Some of the tics that people with Tourette's syndrome come out with could not possibly come from the mind of someone without Tourette's syndrome, which then as an artist, as a visual artist, just makes it a delight to be able to work from. Amber is an illustrator who has worked with Tourette's Hero. A couple of years ago, Jess and Matthew invited Amber to make the Tourette's Hero Christmas card, assisted by Jess's tics, of course. Biscuit, well, it starts by um, Biscuit handing it over to Tourette's to a certain extent. Biscuit, um, there's a suggestibility, Biscuit, to some tics that while most of my tics are absolutely nothing to do with what I'm thinking, that there is an element where Biscuit, you can uh, certainly know that certain themes might set them off. And Biscuit, I don't have any control over what comes out, but we do play with that suggestibility. And so maybe we'd try and sort of provoke a load of Christmas ticks and then record them. Sometimes that's successful and sometimes that's not. Biscuit. In this case, it was successful. And Jess gave Amber some Christmas-themed ticks to choose from. After a lot of deliberation, we decided to go ahead with Santa Claus is coming to town riding on a giant pussy as the card. <laughs> so... I don't know how much I need to describe it more than that. If your imagination is quite good, then hopefully you'll be able to imagine Santa Claus on a massive cat flying over the rooftops. It is this very intricately detailed kind of Victorian pen drawing of this almost mythical looking giant cat with Santa Claus on it, which illustrated to me that finding the right ticks is a big part of the process, unless you feel like drawing all kinds of biscuits or cookies. This is Keir Williams of the video art duo, Chris and Keir. You go through kind of tears of laughter to kind of these slight poignant moments. So I think for me, it's just literally go and explore. They brought the ticks to life in a whole new way, not in a static way, in a very real world way. And, you know, they did one of this fish is reversing, showing a fish going slowly backwards down a, a, a sort of, uh, canal towpath or uh, Lebanese balloon animal and uh, a man with loads of balloons sort of stuck to his bum like uh, parading on all fours to the uh, Lebanese national anthem. To make these abstract short mostly silent videos they'd go to the pound store the British equivalent to the dollar store and buy loads of strange items to make props out of. We then spent three or four days going through the database and finding ticks that we could imagine as performances. And for each of those, we made a load of props. We ended up making way more of these little performances that are in the final video. But what we found out was that the ones we thought would be really funny mostly got cut. And the ones that we weren't so sure about when we performed them, they ended up being kind of the most funny. For the final edit, we chose the ones that would work in this kind of quick sketcho format that we decided on. Chris and Keir were acutely aware that a lot of video art and galleries can be long and tedious, and that very few people sit down and watch an entire video. But the wonderful thing about ticks is that they are short, simple ideas, which means they can be turned into quick, simple pieces. And while they're often bizarre and unusual, they aren't unrelatable either. They're just 
provides you with kind of source material that isn't random, but doesn't quite make sense. It sort of lies somewhere between the two, between sense and nonsense, which in itself just is a really exciting thing as an artist, I think. And I think that space between sense and nonsense is what makes Tourette's Hero a unique source of inspiration. So the idea that these random ideas, Biscuit, that aren't nonsense, they are of me, they have the imprint, Biscuit, of me on them, they are of the sort of time that I've grown up, they have the sort of cultural things that I've been exposed to, Biscuit, but they are also not my chosen thoughts or ideas, and they're certainly funnier and more inventive than the conscious part of me, Biscuit, can ever dream of being, Biscuit. Which is why an artist like Joseph Hyde was interested in doing a project using Tourette's Hero. I'm always trying to get away from just my own imagination and the limitations of that. And, you know, if I make something that's just 100% me and my ideas, then in some ways it's a little bit boring to me because that's where I live in that head. So the randomness is kind of, hey, that's, that's exciting. It's like another musician kind of improvising with me or, or throwing something unexpected at me. For a year? Jess kept meticulous notes on the frequency and type of ticks she was experiencing. Joseph took that data and created a piece called The Alchemy of Chaos. So it's literally a year in, in seven minutes. So it's not actually what she says as part of the tick, it's more the pattern of them over a whole year. And the thing is, it's really hard to understand that. If you just see a book full of numbers, that's not going to mean anything to you. But if you can turn it into a piece of music or a piece of sound, then you can kind of hear the rhythms and the patterns and maybe understand it in a new way. Art is a useful tool for understanding something in a new way. And understanding Tourette's syndrome in a new way is part of the reason why Jess and Matthew started Tourette's Hero. Most people still think of Tourette's as the swearing disease. But Tourette's Hero has grown into something much bigger now. They started traveling stage shows that are open to anyone to attend with or without Tourette's syndrome or really any disability. It's extremely inclusive. And because of this inclusivity and the diverse audience that attends them, anything can and does happen during a performance. And they just go with it and let it add to the experience. We have a, a, a motto that is, you know, Tourette's Hero changing the world one tick at a time. I think that when we kind of started, that just sounded good and sounded like something that we intended to do, but wasn't something that we necessarily thought we would be in a position to really be putting into action every day. And now, eight years down the line, it feels like we are genuinely in a position where we're kind of helping to bring about some quite big change within um, society, particularly in the arts in terms of the way disability is viewed and also the way people understand Tourette's. I don't think I had any idea what I was letting myself in for and uh, that's beautiful. Like we haven't had any set ideas or set agendas. Tourette's Zero has surprised us uh, in so many ways and has been, yeah, more important and successful, you know, to me than I could ever have imagined and has been, has changed my life in ways that I could never have imagined. And I'm, uh, I'm glad that I didn't have fixed ideas for what it, for what it could be. That's Jess Tom, the co-founder of Tourette's Hero, 
which you can find at Tourette'sHero.com. That piece was produced by Studio 360's former sound engineer, Matt Fiddler, who also featured Jess on Very Bad Words, his great podcast about swearing. But Louis was like the turning point. I mean, you know, I, his, his allegation was the only one that made me, like, laugh. <laughs> A few months ago, Dave Chappelle gave the world his take on the Me Too movement and the sexual misconduct committed by his fellow comedian, Louis C.K. It's terrible. I know it's terrible. I'm sorry, ladies. You're right. You are right. But at the same time, I mean, you know what I mean? I don't know. Jesus Christ, they took everything from Louis. I was like, I don't know, it might be disproportionate. I can't tell. I can't tell. This is like where it's hard to be a man. They took everything from Louis. It's hard to be a man. Really. But what really was surprising and ironic was the venue where Chappelle made that case. He was doing his bit at a small room at a comedy club in Los Angeles, a club that 40 years ago was set up to provide exactly the opposite perspective. Producer Daniel Guimet tells the story. Hey, Mom. What are you doing? This is a scene from Polly Shore's old reality show, which was called Minding the Store. Because the comedy store is pretty much in shambles. And Leave it alone, Polly. I like it the way it is. Don't change anything. Mom, stop it. And I want to play this because Polly Shore's mom, the woman arguing with him on the phone, was once one of the most important people in American comedy. Don't you do anything unless you check with me first. All right, I got it. All right, all right. Unfortunately, there is very little audio of her out in the world. This is pretty much all I could find. And I never got a response from my interview requests. But I wanted you to hear something, because back in the 70s, Mitzi Shore ran the comedy club that I think mattered most in Los Angeles, the Comedy Store. The Comedy Store was an old building and... You know, water got in the walls, rats got in the walls. Harris Pete did stand-up and odd jobs at the store in the 70s. So sometimes you had the rat smell, and sometimes you had the mildew smell, and sometimes you had the mixing of the two pungent odors. Despite the ambiance, the place was usually packed, and not just with audiences. Agents and managers and bookers were always there to scout out the amazing talent Mitzi was helping to develop. I have something for you, a very special thing I'd like to begin by doing. I'd like to see Henry Winkler out here doing this shit. There is Robin Williams, Jay Leno, David Letterman, Jim Carrey, Gary Shandling, and some comedians who might have been introduced by Howie Mandel, like this. Our next guest is a, um, a, a, a woman. She's a woman. I know that because I've seen her tits. No, I, never, I didn't see her tits. They're not her tits. No, they are. I'm just kidding. Ladies and gentlemen, Judy Carter. I had to inevitably follow a guy who was doing a half-hour routine about women smelling like fish. Judy Carter used to get on stage at the store back in the late 70s, and she found that female comedians usually started at a disadvantage with audiences just by being female comedians. And I'll never forget being like getting on stage and you watch the body posture of the audience before you go on. And it's like you're a woman and, it's, um, and they all cross their legs and cross their arms across their chest as if they're going to be reprimanded. Like, oh, we're going to be punished for laughing at those nasty jokes. But Judy and others could only get that reaction if they got on stage at all. 
Here's writer and performer Meryl Marco. There was a number of women who were in there kicking, myself included, but there would be whole nights at the comedy store, the whole lineup, there'd be no women, not one. Mitzi, of course, was running a business, meaning she was putting on stage who the audiences would respond to best. The most popular female comics were performing a style of comedy that Judy and Meryl and other younger comics were moving away from. Last night I said to my husband, what's your favorite sexual position? He said, next door. It is You know, humor is the most aggressive medium there is. Comedian Robin Tyler. And the only way that women were allowed to be aggressive was to turn that on themselves. So you have comics like Joan Rivers talking about being ugly or overweight or whatever. Oh, that's why I I have no sex appeal, which kills me. The only way I can ever hear heavy breathing from my husband's side of the bed is when he's having an asthma attack. Oh, you don't know. I was not self-deprecating, which was a very new thing for the world of female comedians. Sandra Bernhard was doing something that the generation after Joan Rivers was doing more and more, turning their aggression outward. We have a charming young lady by the name of Sandra Bernhard. Sandra? Here she is roasting Richard Pryor in 1977. I have a little announcement to make. Immediately following the World Series, the reunion of Richard's ex-wives will be held in Dodger Stadium. (laughs) call Richard a racist? (laughs) I can. You know, I was a product of the feminist movement. I was like, enough of this. You know, it's time for women to feel good about themselves as opposed to just stand-ups who are just, you know, playing these beaten, you know, women who are, you know, in in loveless marriages. It's just what didn't speak to me. I was the new generation. And then we started to do pro-women's material. And so, of course, any nightclub, you know, the comedy story, get the hell off, you bitches, you know, and stuff like that. This again is Robin Tyler. I remember one night, and this is true, it wasn't even a joke, a guy stood up and he screamed, are you a lesbian? And I said, are you the alternative? And that happened at the comedy store. Mitzi herself once claimed that in 1978, there were 30 male comics to every female comedian. So that year, seeing the numbers stacked against these women, seeing how they were treated on stage, Mitzi came up with a plan to help them. So Mitzi holds this meeting. Performer Alison Arngrim. And she invites all the women comics. And she gets up. How many is that? Oh my God, it must have been 20 or 30 people. It was a good group. And to this group, Mitzi announces her plan. She would transform a back room at the store that was up a narrow flight of stairs into a space only for female performers. And then she says, but it's going to be a space for women, and it's so male-dominated. In the other rooms, it'll be better for you, and it will have this woman to be focused on, so you'll be getting more time because this room will be all women. Yes, Mitzi sold it as a place where women could, like, be unbridled. And uninhibited. She said it would give women a chance to grow uh, with each other. Like, in her mind, it was like an all-woman's college. In the 1940s, when it was a mob-affiliated nightclub, the room featured belly dancers. So, in an ode to those female performers, Mitzi named her space The Belly Room. At first, I'm like, okay, that is the worst name. But it felt very womb-like. It felt very, there are, there's no other world outside of here but this room. Again, Judy Carter. It benefited us because it was a place of real experimentation. 
food stage, this mock fight. Like, you know, we'd be angry at each other, and then we'd literally, like, wrestle with each other and throw each other down on the ground. I remember doing an ode to a clitoris. Oh, God, I have so much. I did stuff on Jesus being gay. You did stuff you could not have done that anywhere else. They would have said, what the hell are you talking about, woman? So, Sandra, I read you would sing songs in there? Um, Yeah, The Friendship of Fools. Friendship of fools can be as sweet as wine. You came to me a stranger, bearing gifts that were so fine. And I accepted because I wanted... We all just, we just had the best time together. And we were supportive of one another. And that's how I remember it. Such a fool. Perhaps because of how out there the material could get, or just because it was all female comedians... The Belly Room didn't have the same VIP audience as downstairs. When The Tonight Show or whoever wanted to hire comedians, you'd go there and do your act, and there'd be agents in the audience and stuff, and you would launch a career from that. And so you'd do that night after night after night, hoping somebody would see you. And did that ever happen in The Belly Room? That never happened in The Belly Room. No, The Belly Room was a place where you were being placated. Actually, besides the lack of agents and bookers, there wasn't much of an audience at all. It was, it was a great place to go be anonymous, you know, if just being alone in your apartment wasn't enough for you. Often, the audience was just overflow from downstairs, people killing time until a table opened up for them in the main room. I remember distinctly performing something and doing a joke and looking down and six people got up to go to the original room and the whole room was back to empty again by the time I got to my punchline. Like, the tension of it is it seemed like, like the argument, like Meryl was saying, was, like, well, is this ghettoizing space? Let's totally. Sort of marginalize or push us aside. People don't want to come see us. They don't fucking exile. Complete yeah. fucking exile. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we would sit on the staircase, and it was a constant conversation of separate is not equal. That seemed to be part of the intention for the room itself. Because Mitzi actually didn't think a lot of the female comics could work alongside the guys downstairs. I say that because in 1979, she told Mother Jones that they, quote, get psychologically blocked when they're working on the same level as a man. It was a loser place. It was was clear that the attitude was that women weren't as good as the people in the original room. To me, there are benefits from it because it was hidden away, because it was marginalized. I felt freedom there. But I could absolutely understand that other female comics, this was the only place that they could perform. And then Mitzi could go, well, you're getting gigs. What are you complaining about? It was, there was actually le- even less reason for you to go on the main stage because you could be on at the belly room. So you call in for times and go, you're on in the belly room on Tuesday and then Wednesday and Friday. And, and then what happened is as soon as that belly ro- room opened, wow. I was only in the belly room. And wow. so were a whole bunch of other people. Of course, there was another way to deal with this. A few comedians like Marsha Warfield just flat out refused to perform in the belly room. It, no. I mean, it just wasn't something I wanted to do. Why would I go up to the belly room? I just, you know, just it seemed like an insult to me. Marsha's principled stand was easier to make because she was the rare female comic who was actually making a living on the club circuit. She didn't need the belly room. I didn't see it as an opportunity. I saw it as segregating people and saying, you are not good enough to compete with everybody else. You need your own little space in the back where you can do your little girl thing. 
The belly room kept women on the margins of the comedy store, meaning it wasn't a place where you could test your material against mainstream audiences or even much of an audience at all. It wasn't a place to get discovered by agents and bookers like Robin Williams and David Letterman or, you know, Howie Mandel did. The only value it seemed to have was that you could find your voice there. I carved out my spot up there and just allowed myself to be fully who I was. You know, I mean, I was very into dressing really chicly. I would go and get, like, tuxedos at secondhand stores and wear them with high heels. And, you know, just like I was from the whole way I looked to the way everything I was doing, I was, like, fashioning somebody who had a very, like, unique look and point of view. A film career, her own one-woman show, and even a record which will be released soon. As far as I'm concerned, this person embodies all that is chic and fabulous in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, please say hello to Sandra Bernhardt. Sandra? Years after she left the belly room, Sandra Bernhardt became famous. In 1983, she co-starred in Martin Scorsese's movie The King of Comedy, and she turned that platform into TV gigs and comedy specials for channels like HBO and Showtime. Now, please, just give me an old-fashioned, sweaty, big-titty bitch of rock and roll, okay? And she did it by using the persona she had honed in the belly room into something equal parts caustic and ironic, stand-up and cabaret, like in this tribute to the band Heart. Now, when these women wrote a lyric and sang a song, you know they had lived it, okay? I saw him again today. I had to turn my heart away. You better burn, 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 burn it to the wind. They wrote it, they sang it, they snorted it, they fucked it, they lived it, okay? These women created the road. There was no road before them. They did shit that would break these little bitches in half. Sometime in 1979, or maybe it was 1985, it depends on who you ask, the belly room changed. Men began performing there because female comics weren't enough of a draw. In 1993, Mitzi reflected on the belly room's first incarnation. She told the LA Times, it wasn't open long enough to have real influence. And among the people that performed there, Judy Carter and Alison Arngrim, as talented as they are, have yet to become household names. Robin Tyler, a pioneer for gay comedy, has become more of an activist. And Meryl Marco's success came behind the scenes as the co-creator of Late Night with David Letterman. But the Belly Room short-lived experiment, as imperfect as it was, still means something to Sandra Bernhardt. Okay, so you're like developing your style in the Belly Room. Um, was there a night when you were there ever when you were just like, I think I got it? Yeah, yes. There were many nights that were revelations like that. As Paul Mooney would say, Bernhard, you have to shed your skin like a snake every time you get up on stage. And that's what I did. And, you know, I think to be able to go back to that feeling and that memory is very inspiring because, you know, you go into this business with a dream and when it's fulfilled, it's a big deal because not a lot of people make it. Daniel Gamet produced that story. Thanks to Jeff Scott and Argus Hamilton for their help. One last thing before we go. We're working on a new feature called Unsung Hero 
about people who work behind the scenes while somebody else gets all the glory, like with me and my producers on this show. So tell us, do you or somebody you know perform some arts-related job that never gets its real due? such as a lighting designer who works at a museum to make sure the artwork is properly lit, or a food stylist who makes the prop meals we see actors eating on TV shows and in movies, or maybe a dance company's attending physician. Whether you're one of these people or your pal or sister-in-law is, we want to hear about it. Please tell us all about the job in a voice memo or email and send that to incoming at studio360.org. And put unsung hero in the subject line. Thanks. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our show was mixed this week by... Whitney Jones. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. And our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. I'm Kurt Anderson. Thank you very much for listening. PRI. Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, one of America's greatest poets. I celebrate myself and what I assume you shall assume. For every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. But even Walt Whitman had his critics. The man who wrote page 79 of The Leaves of Grass deserves nothing so richly as the public executioner's whip. Poetry that contains multitudes. Next time on Studio 360. 